0: Hey, it's Sarah. That's What She Said is presented by Coors Light, the beer made to chill. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Don't forget to check out the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gotts from 10 to noon Eastern on ESPN Radio. Plus, you can now listen to original content before and after the radio show wherever you find your podcasts.
1: That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said.
0: that's what she said conversations with interesting people from the world of sports music comedy and more talking about their lives careers successes and failures
1: my name is brandi clark and my dilemma is i exercise really hard and i eat really clean until about 4 p.m and then katie bar the door for what i might put in my mouth and it's what keeps me from my goal fitness and goal weight
0: Oh, Brandy, I'm with you, girl. I'm with you to the point where I actually have a solution that I have put into my everyday and that I try to follow and I've been doing pretty well with. And that is at 1030 p.m., I have an alarm go off in my phone that after which that alarm goes off, I'm not allowed to eat anything. So I tend to make all the bad choices late and I don't eat dinner till like nine o'clock because the radio show going so late. So my schedule is later than everyone else. So maybe your alarm would need to go off earlier. Cause if you're working really hard and doing really well till four and then things get weird after that, maybe move the alarm up a little earlier. I basically just have to eat dinner. If I'm still hungry, have a snack or something. And then after that, shut it down. Because, you know, 1130 midnight is not really the time that I need to be wandering around my kitchen figuring out what to put in my mouth. So uh, I'm with you, I feel you. I think we've all been there before. Maybe try the alarm. See if it works. Then you only have to have the discipline to say, I've decided this well before tonight, no matter what the excuse is tonight, it doesn't work. The alarm goes off and that's it, that's the rule. Um, other than that, uh, maybe hypnosis or uh, remove yourself from a room that's anywhere near food. Yeah, it's tough, I'm with you. The commish has spoken. My guest is Brandi Clark, a six-time grammy nominee country music singer-songwriter her songs have been recorded by Cheryl Crow, Miranda Lambert, the band Perry, Reba McIntyre, Leanne Rimes, Darius Rucker, Casey Musgraves. I could go on. She was nominated for overall Best New Artist for her own work at the 2015 Grammy Awards and has also earned nominations for Best Country Vocal Performance, Album, and Song. Her new album, Your Life Is A Record, came out in March. This was a really fun conversation. I've not had the pleasure of having too many musicians on the pod, and I'm such a music buff, so I loved getting a chance to talk to her about the songwriting process, whether she's usually coming up with words or music first, what it's like to co-write alongside somebody else. Um, How she likes writing for artists who really know who they are and come with a message and a a brand. Why she thinks of music and performance and uh, even what I do as sort of figure skating. I love the analogy. We get into that. Um, Also, the basketball scholarship she earned and how she was an athlete growing up and eventually had had to pick music or sports. How her latest album was inspired by John Prine and how she brings a ton of progressive ideas to a country industry that isn't always open to them. Uh, It's a great conversation. She's super interesting, very talented. You also get to hear a couple songs in there. So hope you enjoy it. That's what she said. So happy to have Brandi Clark on the podcast. I love picking the brains of musicians, and I haven't had that many on yet. So this is a great chance uh, to talk about the songwriting process and performing process. And you are actually a friend of my co-host, Jason Fitz. Oh. Used to be used to be Spain and Fitz right when he came out of like not long after he came out of touring with the band Perry and decided to uh, move into sports full time. We took a hiatus. We hosted separate shows and then starting um, next later this month, we'll be back together uh, hosting. Um, and he had just only wonderful things to say about you and working on your one of your records.
1: He's fantastic. You know, he worked on my first record. Um, and then I would see I was always confused because, you know, that was back before people had. You know, we're musicians and podcasts and mm-hmm. songwriters and working at the grocery store. You know, it feels like we're in a in a time that, you know, the longer I live, the more multifaceted people's yeah. careers seem to
0: be. A lot of side hustles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and now he's sort of out of the music world other than, of course, his relationships and occasional dabbling. Um, So now he's in my world instead of yours, which is sort of funny. Um, But let's talk about how you kind of started out. You were born in a really small town um, in Washington, a logging town of 900 people, which I can't even imagine because I make fun of my husband's hometown for not having a a stoplight. But it still has like 3000 people. So 900. I mean, did you did you know everyone? Was it like basically a, a big one big family?
1: Yeah, it was. And you know, when you're, we had a stoplight, but it was only flashing. Okay. okay. Yeah. So it was like a halfway. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One, one, two sides of it were flashing red and then the other side is flashing yellow. (laughs) Um, You know, if it's all, you know, it's all, you know, you know, I, I didn't realize what a small town it was because all of the schools I played sports and all of the schools we played were also towns, similar size, some of them smaller. And, um, you know, I also didn't realize that I grew up in a part of the country where it rains all the time until I left and then came back and was like, man, it rains a lot here. Whatever your, wherever, whatever your normal is, I think is just your normal.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to get back into the sports stuff, but um, I read that your mom was sort of the one who taught you to, to love music, to write and perform. So how young was it when you started kind of doing that? you know the
1: first I really I mean music was always around when I was really little this is how rural we lived the cable didn't reach out to where I grew up so all we had was music in the beginning um and I don't remember I don't remember not having a tv but we didn't we just had the had records and um so and my mom played everything like she played piano and accordion and she could harp she could just kind of pick up whatever um So, but when I really remember, I fell in love with guitar at age nine. And I remember somebody, uh, there was a guy that came to visit my grandparents and my grandpa had a guitar and this guy picked it up and was playing it. And I wanted to, to learn how to play. And I remember he showed me a chord or something, but then, you know, the next thing I knew I was in guitar lessons and, um, playing a a much easier guitar for a child to play than that big, uh, Gibson copy that my grandpa had.
0: Your dad passed away when you were young. How old were you?
1: I was 25. So I had, I had moved to Nashville. Um, definitely, but definitely young, you know, now that I look back on it, I was really pretty young to have something like that
0: happen. Was he as involved in the music side of things or was that more something you shared with your mom?
1: You know, more my mom, uh, somebody, I don't, I, I've said before, like my mom played everything and my dad played the radio. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I mean, he definitely was a music lover, but he didn't play or sing or anything. Um, but he was really, he's really where I got my drive from. He was an athlete. And, um, so that was like, I, I, that not, when I said I was nine, I feel like that birthday represent represents me as a person, especially as a kid. I remember my, my mom got me Patsy Cline's greatest hits on cassette and my dad got me a softball mitt. And so, you know, I was, (laughs) I had those two, two parents.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, you uh, you actually stopped focusing on music for a bit to really get into the sports side of things to the point of uh, getting a basketball scholarship. I'm amazed. So I remember when I was getting recruited for sports uh, for college, they would always, particularly for basketball, I remember when you were filling out recruiting se- sheets, they would send you, they would ask you who the, the best players in your area were. They wanted to get a feel for the competition against whom you were playing. And so I was lucky enough to get to put Taja and Tamika Catchings, both of whom went on to play in the WNBA. And we're like, wow. so right. Like I was like, L- yeah, I'm, I'm surrounded. This is tough over here. Uh, respect my conference. Um, what is that like for you? Because to be able to get a scholarship coming out of such a small town and playing against other small towns, uh, was it all basically what you had on tape or or were you going to AAU tournaments where they could see you outside of that format? It was a little bit of everything. It was tape.
1: I think less, it was more so camps. And then AAU, you know, I ended up getting a scholarship to a college where I had I had attended their camp for several summers, Um, and you know, there really wasn't, you know, there was no Tamika Catchings. There were really great players in the division I played in, but not of that stature. Um, But there was there was the there was when I look back on it, the competition was was really good, and um, but I was not some great. You know, had I been against those sorts of players, I probably would have switched to music a little sooner. (laughs) Sometimes I wish I would have been, you know, maybe would have forced my hand a little quicker.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I sometimes feel the same way because I came around to the sports broadcasting later in life. I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live or Broadway because I was also in music when I was growing up. And sometimes I feel like it makes you more well-rounded by the time you get around to what you want to do. And, and you're more interesting than if you'd been sort of on a straight track the whole time. But that's a really nice way to reframe things when you wonder if you could have been much more successful had you started earlier. So I, I yeah. tend to try to reframe it that way instead of wondering what if. Well, and I think you know. I think you're so right. It does make you more well-rounded.
1: And one thing sports really gave me is self-discipline. Yeah, and and I don't think people that are lifetime musicians always have that. You know, it's a little bit looser schedule,
0: right? And um,
1: but but being an athlete and perseverance. Yeah, you know, sticking with something, practicing, getting back. I mean, I look at somebody was asking me just last week, how I look at going in and writing songs all the time. And I said, well, it's always a sports analogy for me. Mm -hmm. And I think of it as, it might've even been Brian Koppelman. Um, Every day you're going into practice and then the day that you get a great idea, that's a game.
0: Yeah. And if you
1: haven't been going to practice, you're not going to hit the ball.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you get to the game, you got to then be willing to put the effort and time in. You can't get lazy and and stop midway through because you might not come back in that same kind of zone. Yes, um, for for writing and creating. Uh, so you go to uh, Central Washington University, you play basketball there. Um but you don't finish there. You you was it was it did you lose the passion for sports? Was it just not the right fit? Um why did you end up going going back to a community college to finish your degree?
1: You know, I think it was two things. I think Um, it was, I lost the passion for sure. Towards the end of high school, I really started to get back into music. And like after my senior season of basketball, like that spring, I remember really like picking up my guitar and and I would come home every night and sing with my mom when she played piano. And I think it's because I didn't have goals beyond college, like getting that college scholarship at that time, the WNBA was a new thing. And I think even then I knew, you know, that's not that's not going to be me. I'm 5'6 and kind of slow, yeah. even at my playing weight, you know. <laughs> um, and then homesick. You know, I moved – I grew up in Morton, which is the west side of the state, which is very green, very lush. And then I moved to Ellensburg, which is not. You know, you're really the, – the landscape is so different. I remember – I would get so happy there when it would rain because <laughs> it felt like more like where I was from. So I really think it was those two things. I wasn't really ready to leave my parents because I moved back and attended community college and lived with them for two more years and then moved to Nashville. I guess it was actually three years. I spent a year doing
0: some classes and, and saving up money. Um, and then I moved to Nashville so it's funny uh you you sort of are like i i I imagine the same thought process i i went to cornell i got i I finished the track stuff i took all the classes just in case it didn't work out to move to hollywood and be some famous star on saturday night live but i immediately you know i got back to chicago saved a couple bucks and then i was like i'm gonna move to la and just try it and if it sucks or i'm terrible at least i like went full-fledged that sounds like you weren't interested in dabbling in music. You were like, I'm going to move to Nashville and it's going to be sink or swim, you know, fail or succeed. You wanted to like fully invest in it this time, as opposed to when you'd sort of had one foot in one foot out. Totally. And you know, one thing I knew from a really young age, I I was really lucky in that I started
1: working really young. You know, I had my first jobs at, you know, 12, 13, and they were all, uh, labor minimum wage sort of jobs. And I knew that, and I liked them, like, do not get me wrong. I got a job. I wanted to quit college. And my mom got me a job at this cedar fencing mill where she worked. And I love, I remember for the first two weeks, I was like, this is amazing. Like, maybe I won't go back to college. I'm making good money. And then about two weeks in, I started like waiting for the whistle, like Hmm, hmm. the break whistle and then the lunch whistle and then the last whistle, and so I knew I don't I didn't want to be somebody that worked all week long to then get to do what I wanted to do on the weekend. I wanted to have a job that that didn't feel like a job. And don't get me wrong, being a singer-songwriter is hard. People people see you on stage and think, "Oh, what a dream." And that is a dream. But there's another 22 hours in that day. <laughs> right. I'm sure you know it with what you do. Mm-hmm. That that's not easy and that's not always easy, but I love it. I've never felt, I, I wanted a job where I never felt like I worked. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's why I knew I needed to move to Nashville. I knew where I was at, it wouldn't happen.
0: It's funny. There's this story and I've talked about it on the podcast, but it's been a long time. It's been several years since I talked about it. And uh, I think that you and I are similar age, um, And the story was essentially why a lot of millennials or a little bit older than that are unhappy. And it was because, you know, parents were happy just to have a job and then have a house. But then they raised their kids with this idea that you should follow your dreams and do what you love, which is a great thing. But not everybody is going to be talented at the thing they love and be able to follow their dreams and do what they love. A lot of people are just going to have to have a job and make Mm -hmm. money and get by. And so there is a generation of people who were sort of set up with a different expectation that they would be tremendously hopeful about their careers and and what what how fulfilling what they did would be and how for for many it would just be a constant disappointment, unlike the generation before that was proud to have achieved these different kind of markers. Um, but yeah, I, I I always feel incredibly lucky to do something that I love. And the, the path to getting there is usually when it's a creative endeavor filled with a ton of self doubt, um, Mm -hmm. because it's subjective, right? The markers for, are you talented or funny or a good singer or a good writer are not something that can be decided based on a specific set of, of, um, of grades or or anything like that it's it's how other people react to it so oh. for you what were the early <laughs> moments where enough people reacted to what you did where the outside support made you think okay this isn't just in my head like i can do this job for a living
1: you know it still happens actually and <laughs> yeah. it's funny i want to say one thing when you were talking about you choose this creative endeavor that's very subjective i was just telling a friend of mine last week who's a fantastic songwriter who's really frustrated who's having a lot of success by the way i said here's the deal we chose ice skating we, <laughs> yes we we didn't choose basketball or football yes. where there's a score yeah. you know we chose ice skating um
0: that's along, such a great yeah a great analogy that's Especially for, for a track person, because literally every event is just a number. You either yes. ran faster or jumped higher or you didn't. It doesn't even matter if there, there's no referee, there's no teammates. You either no. did it or you didn't. And then everything else I've done since has been like, I don't know. What would you guys think? Did you like it? Yeah, there's no politics in track. The gun goes yeah. off, and boom. Yeah. there
1: you go. Yeah. Um, You know, every step along the way, there was something that I remember when I first moved here, I joined NSAI, Nashville Songwriters Association International. And I don't know if they still do, but at the time they would have these Thursday night meetings where you could pitch to a publisher. And so you would put your song in a basket. And and if you were lucky, it got chosen. And it was one of those things where everybody's song didn't get chosen every time, but if you got chosen one week, maybe your song wouldn't go in the next week. So it was, it was real fair as far as how your songs would get heard. And I remember there being a publisher, um, Pat Higdon, who at the time was at Patrick Joseph music, um, who I really respected, who, who said really nice things about one of my songs. And I remember that being, that was like at that point, like winning a Grammy. It felt like (laughs) what, what that would feel like. And then, you know, playing, play, I went to Belmont and I worked my way through there and ended up into in, in some showcases by the end of the time, end of my time there. And, and every year prior to that, I was being denied into those things, but there was always something. It was usually a person who I respected and not always someone who was older. Sometimes it was a peer who liked what I did. Um, that's so much of it to me. I wish I didn't get as much validation from outsiders. Wish I could just get it internally, but I can't. So a lot of times it's that. And then, you know, I got a publishing deal and so then it became having a demo session and songs getting on hold, which meant an artist would say, Hey, I want to hold this. Don't play it for anybody else. And there would be a grace period where they could hold the song. And then if they didn't record it, somebody else would, would, you know, put it on hold. Um, And then it was getting cuts um, and then it was getting single radio singles and I had several radio singles that, that bombed. Um, and then it was having a hit and then it was making a record then it was, you know, I got passed on a lot. And then it was that record, finding a home and critics. I got a lot, I still get a lot of validation from critics and a lot of, okay, I'm doing something right. right. Um. You know those those were kind of and there was uh, award nominations. Was say, then,
0: then the Grammy nominations. Those are always a yeah. good indicator that you're doing yeah. something. Okay. Well, I'm curious whether the dream was and deep down in the honest parts of your heart, not necessarily what you believed could happen, but what you most wanted to happen. Was it songwriter or was it performing artist who also writes songs sometimes for others?
1: You know, it changed when I first moved to Nashville. It was recording artist. And then as I immersed myself in the culture of Nashville, I started to see just how much creativity fueled me. And I started to see friends of mine that were getting record deals that fell more on that performer side. They weren't as fueled by that. You know, they were more, I've never been, I mean, one of my favorite things honestly about this podcast was when, um, my manager told me, Well, it's on camera, but it's not going to be on camera. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, you, yeah. Don't, you don't have to do your makeup. <laughs> like, yep. I've, That's always been kind of the harder part for mm-hmm. me. And I saw people, other females that were having success, that they loved that part of it. They would cancel a writing appointment to get a, t- a spray tan.
0: Right. Never right. going to be me. Yeah.
1: So I just started to, and then I turned 30 and I started to think, You know, that part of this dream is done. And that's okay because I'm really dreaming this songwriter dream big, and I know I can become a great songwriter. You know, I know I, I I see great songwriters and I and I watch them, and I know I can do that because a lot of that is about working really hard. Yeah, and so and there's a lot of luck involved in that too. But right about the time I completely let go of the artist dream, I was approached about making my first record and that was crazy because i also realized if you dream something it doesn't really go away because the second that came up i was dreaming it as big or bigger than i ever had mm-hmm. and um and i think you know the beautiful part of that was i really had let it go um and and i got to and i've gotten to have a career that is, that really is driven by my songwriting. I mean, I wouldn't have an artist career if it wasn't for my songwriting.
0: You I'm little not dog, dog scrapping over there. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. They're I got three of them. It. Yeah. They're, they're part, part of, of it. Do, yeah. Yeah. Um, they're little they're loud.
1: Um, so, you know, I guess the way I've gotten to do it has been a really amazing mix and yeah. and now you know, that I am on the road, the, the songs that I write and record and get, and other artists, other artists record are because I'm on the road, you know, I'll, I'll be at a festival and somebody will approach me about writing and we'll write. And so I don't, I don't have to fight to get in those rooms. And I, and so much of that has been my artist career.
0: Well, and if you become successful at the the behind-the-scenes songwriting, then when you get the opportunity to do the performance, the pressure's off a little bit because you have this thing to fall back on. So you can be so much more probably free and yourself in those moments instead of feeling like you have to to be something else in order to fit what they're looking for. I mean, I think of course in every industry, there's an unfair expectation for women to be great at whatever they do while also looking perfect. And of course there's an image thing for men as well, but it's, there's a, there's a much bigger acceptable set of uh, aesthetic things that you can fit in as a man than as a woman. Um, And so I, I often feel the same way. You know, I used to come up and see Aaron Andrews and be like, well, I'm never going to be Aaron Andrews. So I guess that's not the job for me. Uh, I do, I I would like to spend time doing other things other than, you know, like you said, spray tanning and figuring out how to do my hair and makeup perfectly mm-hmm. and whatever. Um, but when you do get your foot in the door and you're like, oh, they're going to let me in here. OK, fine. Then I'm going to go ahead and <laughs> do my best and uh, take advantage of it. The songwriting thing is fascinating to me because you've written for and with so many incredible people. And I'm trying to picture whether it's more artistic or business-like. Do you sit down with a word cloud about that person's ethos and brand and interests and talk about what they would like to project? Or do you sit down with pizza and beer and fiddle around on the guitar until you hear something that you like? Like, is it somewhere in the middle? I think
1: it's somewhere in the middle. You know, I've really learned, I used to really, when I was sitting down to write with another artist, I used to really try, I used to listen to their music. And even if I already knew it, I would listen to it and think, okay, what do they like to say on a record? Mm-hmm. Um, what might they want to say on their next record? You know, because artists evolve. And I would come in with all these ideas. What I've learned Is and a a lot of this has come from making my own records. Artists like the song to be their idea. (laughs) That's me too. If I look at my records, mo not all, but most of the songs were my original idea. Now that's not I didn't clearly if I could write them all by myself, I would. I needed co-writers, as do other artists. But you you want if it's your idea, it tends to be something you want to say. And so I've learned to not do all that homework that really just took me time and probably frustrated them. They're like, I want to write my idea. And I've had more success writing with other artists since then coming in and just trying to help them say what they want to say
0: one of the songs that you wrote, that's one of my favorites and actually helped me get into more country stuff. I had my set of country people that I was into. And then I was, uh, I was on a vacation with a friend and she started playing Casey Musgraves, follow your arrow. And immediately I was like, what's this country song? It's talking about kissing girls and smoking pot and not, you know, I love my truck. And I was so into it. And that's sort of what you're known for is, you know, a little bit of dark humor, realism, um, Talking about current stuff and not just these sort of old school country tropes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you talk about that song in particular? And I think uh, I reached out and got the opportunity to play a little bit of it. So we'll listen to a little bit right here for those who don't know the song. So tell me about uh, what was the inspiration for that?
1: You know, that's a great example of what I was just talking about. That was a song. uh, I wrote that with um, Casey Musgraves and Shane McAnally and Casey uh, was at the time, Shane was also producing Shane and Luke Laird produced her albums. And so I, they were done, you know, so I had been told and then she wanted, she, wanted, she wanted to write and everybody likes to keep their chops up. And so I just kind of thought that was why we were writing that day was just to keep everybody's juices flowing. And she had a poem that she had written to a friend of hers that was going to Europe for the summer, I think. And it just said, smoke lots of joints and kiss lots of boys and follow your arrow. And she wanted to turn that into a song. And she said, you know, I was thinking it'd be cool to have arrows in the artwork. So then I thought, oh, well. Clearly, the album's not done, you know. Right, it's, right. Um, so we wrote that, and I don't feel like anybody at the in the moment felt like we were making some big statement. At least I didn't. And I and I always loved writing with them because they would write anything, and nobody was like worried about saying "kiss lots of boys, kiss lots of girls" if that's something you're into, um, or the roll up a joint. Nobody was worried about that. So then, the next thing I know, Shane tells Shane plays me the cut. It was over Christmas break, and it was great. And I said, "Oh, that's awesome!" Because well, the good news is it's going to be on the record. The bad news is it's knocking this other song of yours off the record. <laughs> and so I just thought, well, there goes my chance at a single on yeah. this record because I never thought "Follow Your Arrow" would be a single, and it was. And it ended up going on to be a huge song for all of us, you yeah. know. Um, so that's the story of that one.
0: Yeah. Are there people that you particularly love writing for because of that sort of because I see Casey Musgraves is always with a little bit of a wink. She's she's genuine and she's heartfelt but more of a wink and less uh more modern. Um are there artists that you like being able to because you feel like they match your sort of um humor and wit and 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 like playful darkness?
1: <laughs> yeah, I like writing with artists who who just want to say something and aren't going to second guess it, you know, like that aren't, and that's go that comes down to somebody who knows who they are Mm -hmm. really, you know, like that's, that's the only time it really works for me. Otherwise I would be better served to just write a song by myself or with another songwriter and pitch it to an artist who doesn't know who they
0: are, but maybe that song might shape that who that is, you know? Yeah. Does that happen as often where you just send a completed song to somebody versus working on it? With not as not as much
1: as it used to. When I first moved to Nashville, the outside cut, that's what they would call that, which is where I've I've had the majority of my hits actually have been outside cuts. And I haven't it's not like I've had you know, dozens of hits. I've had a couple, but they've been outside, um, for the most part. And so that was just about writing a great song and then pitching it to a producer, usually, um, that got it to the artist and the artist is pitched probably, you know, for every project, hundreds, if not a, over a thousand songs. And then that artist choosing that song and recording it, um, that used to be the way it happened it still happens that way um but not as much you know it, at some point it changed and um i think it a lot of it is about f- a financial end of things with record labels not selling as many records so now they have publishing companies and artists get signed to those publishing companies and it's another revenue stream um if i'm looking at it just as a business person And and a lot of artists, someone like Casey, definitely a great songwriter, should be writing her records. But then there are artists that if if that was, if they weren't forced into writing, wouldn't write and would just record other people's songs. I mean, George Strait, who's one of my favorite artists of all time, made an amazing career out of that. Reba McIntyre, for the most part, who's recorded several of my songs and several of other people's songs. You know, Trisha Yearwood, you know, those are people that great singers, great stylists know exactly who they are and get their songs from just, you know, working class songwriters.
0: Yeah. You know, um, you mentioned the business side of things and it's like back to the figure skating again, when you're making a life out of something that somebody else gets to subjectively judge the value of, it can get a little sticky because there's the beauty of art and creativity. And then there's the bottom line of, of what sells. So if you create something and you love what it is and then someone buys it and changes it, are you happy that they paid you and you made money off of it? Or are you still a little bit like that was my baby and you made it worse? Or I don't like how you changed it. Or I don't like how you performed it.
1: Well, luckily for me, I haven't had that happen. I've been really, really pleased with the cuts I have had and the, the singles I've had. So I feel pretty lucky. Um, Boy, I don't know. You know, I guess money doesn't matter enough to me. I would I would not want something of mine out there that I wasn't proud of.
0: Yeah. I think that would be really tough. Or if you wrote it with someone in mind, they passed on it and some other artist that didn't have the vocal chops or the guitar chops or something took it on and just didn't do it the justice you had imagined. I think that would be tough too, even if it was the product that you had made.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, man, we all work really hard at our craft, so we want to see whoever's going to take on our craft next be equally as as good at their part of it.
0: Yeah. One of the things you said on Brian Koppelman's podcast, who's a screenwriter who's been on this podcast before, was that as you're becoming partnered up with people, whether by your choice or somebody else's, to, to go into a writing session and try things out, you need to feel like a genius in order for it to work. Can you kind of explain what you mean by that? Well, I think,
1: you know, publishers, when they set up writers, not all of them, but I think most of them think, okay, well, this person's really good at lyric. This person's really good at melody. Let's put them in a room together. Well, that doesn't always work. Sometimes it does. What I have found works is when I get in a room with someone who likes my instincts and whose instincts I like. And from that, when I say you need to feel like a genius, we're all really insecure, yeah. and we're all big self-doubters. So, I just think if you can feel like a little bit of a genius for, you know, a day, you're you're going to be more um, willing to say something stupid, which is where great songs come from. You know, if you're editing yourself before it even leaves your brain it's not going to, it's not the right room. You know, it's got to be, you've got to be in a room with somebody where you can say, look, I know this isn't it, but here. And they can say, you're right. It's not it. But what if we did this? Or they can say, no, you're so wrong. You're second guessing yourself. That is
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what happens to you more often A line like with Casey saying that she thought, you know, smoke lots of joints and kiss lots of boys. Um, I want to make that a song. Does that happen more often, or does a story that you want to tell, or does a melody that you want to write to? What comes first usually?
1: Well, usually it's either a line like what you're talking about with the Casey story, or a story. Um, Very few times for me has it been a musical idea first. When it is, it's always great. You know, like I've I've had very few songs in my career where myself or a co-writer has come in with an almost completed piece of music. But but those times it has happened, that has always been phenomenal. I wish that happened more often because I have a phone full of ideas (laughs) that when the right music comes along, I can think, even if it's two years ago, I can think, oh man, that one idea that I didn't know what to do with that music Mm -hmm. made me think of it. Yeah. Um, so I wish that happened more for me, but it's usually some sort of a lyric or a story.
0: What'll keep me out of heaven is when you said that, that was like the line came first and then a whole story came after, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it feels to me like you, you kind of toy with the outskirts of, um, of country and what they allow and what they want to hear about and, and what has sort of been traditionally accepted. Um, you're a lesbian, you're open about it. And you, um, I don't know if that has anything to do with your Casey Musgraves lines that you threw in, but I loved those because they felt to me more modern than some old country. Um, Do you ever wonder or have you, before this current record or in the past, how much you want to introduce that side of yourself into your music or how much you want to write with the traditional sort of boy and girl fall in love, I'm singing to a boy kind of uh, ideas?
1: You know, I hadn't really thought about it um, really? That's shocking really, to me. No, I really hadn't. Um, now this album to me was is definitely more personal because it's more um, first person. And even though even though what'll keep me out of heaven is first person, in my mind that was always a story song. Yeah. You know? But definitely with this album, I thought about that more, and I was really really open about. I had gone through a breakup of a long relationship. And that's what this album, a huge part of this album was to me. So that's probably the most I've ever really thought about it. Um, I've always tried to write songs. And this is not this is not about being gay. Maybe it is. I don't know. But I've always tried to write songs that anybody could put themselves in hmm. and stay away from he, she. Right. Because, you know, that's not everybody's story. It's not my story. Yeah. Um, Cause I think those are the best. I mean, you think about like crazy. That's my favorite song of all time. There's no he or she yeah. in that. You don't know me. I mean, I guess there is, but that could also be a real gay song. I mean, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. From yeah. A certain perspective.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, we turned Jolene into a gay song. I don't know if you listened to Dolly Parton's America, but there's a whole professor yes. who's like written about how Dolly's really in love with Jolene. So. Right. So, I've always tried to, I want people to find themselves in
1: my songs, you know? So I've, I've tried to not limit that. And, um, but I've not thought about it a lot in terms of me being gay and how people think about me when I sing a song. Um, I mean, definitely there are songs like Stripes was my first song I ever put out there where in the video, it's a guy and it's me. And that was definitely me being in a character that was really fun. I was already out of the closet then. So it's not like I was trying to let anybody think that Travis right. was the guy in that video was my boyfriend or husband because he's not. Um, but a lot of it. And so a lot of it, like those Stripes sort of songs are me getting into a character that's yeah. really really fun to play for three and a half minutes. Um, But overall, I do try to write songs in a way that they can apply to me and they can apply to you and they can apply to the guy down the street working at Kroger.
0: Yeah. You you mentioned this this new album uh, that just came out in in March um, called Your Life Is a Record is a lot about this breakup, uh, which definitely explains Can We Be Strangers, which is such a great song. It's Thank just you. Not only do I not want to be with you anymore, I actually wish I never met you and never had been with you. It's just such a great sentiment. It's how we feel sometimes about someone that doesn't make us uh, doesn't make us feel good anymore, or maybe makes us feel bad because of how good they did used to make us feel um, and I also like who you thought I was uh, mm-hmm. which uh, we will play just a little bit of that here So that's sort of the first single um, take me behind that because I can feel in that song, this idea of like, Oh man, I really f- this up. And if I could go back and just be more truly myself, maybe we, maybe this whole thing could have been different.
1: Well, that song um, that idea came, I was at the Americano awards a couple of years ago And I was in the audience and John Prine came out to introduce Iris Dement and Hmm. everybody stood up for him for what felt like a long time, you know, and as he deserved. And when everybody finally sat down, I think in an attempt to not get emotional, he said, well, I'm John Prine, but I'd like to go back to being who you thought I was. And it really hit me
0: Yeah.
1: as having been somebody that, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're in a long relationship, you let somebody down, whether it continues to go on or not. And you, there is that part of you that likes to, likes to wishes they could go back and be who they, who
0: they fell in love with. Yes. And that they had, yeah. yeah, Or
1: who they thought they fell in love with a lot of times. right, And, um, or even, you know, when somebody thinks that you're there forever, like none of us get into relationships or at least I don't thinking we're going to break up. You know, I mean, you know, you're I'm always thinking this is it. it. You know, and so it hit me when he said that. I remember I started crying. Like it just hit me really hard. And then I'd also hit me as a songwriter sitting amongst a whole bunch of other songwriters. Well, somebody's gonna write that. It's gonna be me. And so the next day I took that in and wrote it with um Jesse Joe Dillon and Jonathan Singleton. Um, so
0: that's where that came from. So it's interesting because I heard it as I want to be the me that I should have been, which is had I let myself be truly myself and been honest, you would have seen this wonderful person. And you're instead sort of spinning it as I wish whoever you thought I was, which seems like a really awesome, great person who's much less flawed than I actually am. I wish I could be that ideal. And they both work.
1: Yeah. See, that's that you telling me that makes me feel like we really did our job as songwriters is you could take it that way to me. It's like, I wish I would have been who I could have been. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's like the me I could have been when we were to, the best version of me, which is who you've always thought I was. Right. And seen me as.
0: Right. Uh, um, tell me about this record and why it's it's special or different. Um, I imagine that there are certain artists who are very experimental, like this record's going to sound completely different than the next one. And then there are others who are just sort of telling the story of their life in that moment. Um, what's your approach when you start creating, is it song by song or is it overall vision for an album?
1: Overall vision, you know, cause I write a lot of songs. And so usually there's one song on this record, it was past as the past, which is the last song that sort of bubbles up as the centerpiece. And it doesn't always end up in the middle of the record. And it doesn't always end up the centerpiece at the end, but it's it's the catalyst for a record. And that was the song that everybody involved in the process really, well, we're, it's time to make a record. Hmm. And um, for me, it's usually, like my first record, 12 Stories, we had two concepts swirling. It was either the length of a relationship or the day in the life of one woman. Neither of those things became what that record was, or was, was what that record became, but they helped keep it together. Second record. When I wrote the song, Big Day in a Small Town, I knew, oh, I want to, re- I want a record called Big Day in a Small Town. And in my mind, everything can take place in this town. Um, this time, uh, it was a sonic concept. You know, I had worked with Jay Joyce on my last record and thought if I ever work with Jay again, I want to challenge him to cut all acoustic because He's known for a heavier, more electric sound. And he's such a creative guy. Wouldn't that be cool to only use acoustic instruments? So we talked about it and we're both on board with it. And then I remember him coming to me and saying, and he's the one who pointed out to me, this is a breakup record, which he was the last person to hear all the songs. And so, you know, he listened to it down and said, this is breakup record. And I hadn't thought of it that way yet. And so we started working on it. Just four of us did all the, we recorded all the basic tracks. It was mostly acoustic. We did start to add a few electric instruments. And he came to me and said, how do we make this different than every other acoustic singer, songwriter record? And I said, what about strings? And he was like, oh, I don't, know, strings are, they're tough to record. It takes a lot of them. And then he called me that night and said, hey, I was thinking about what you said what about Memphis Strings and Horns? Hmm. And I didn't totally know what he meant. And he said, you know, think like Bobby Gentry, I'm Shelby Lynn, um, Dusty in Memphis. And so then, I, oh, okay, okay. And I said, well, it's worth a try. And, And so we sent three songs to them and they sent those three songs back and just blew our minds. And so we went and got the budget to do the whole album that way. And it really became the character of the, of the record. So that was different for me, that it was more of a sonic concept.
0: It's amazing what a difference those decisions can make to something. And I wonder if you've been influenced more by the label sometimes than on your initial gut instinct. I, I was listening to a live uh, Ray LaMontagne show, and he sort of lamented the fact that the song that he had written, that he loved the way it was, he had been told by the label people that he needed to change it and he needed to make it a certain way and that he liked it better the way he originally recorded. So I'm really excited to hear it because it's uh, You Are the Best Thing, which is a great song. And I'm like, oh my God, it's going to be even better than the one I know. It's going to be so great. And then he played it and I was like, oh, I think the record people were like super right here. Now, again, once you hear something the first time one way, sometimes it's so hard to just hear it completely different and you're going to feel more connected to the first one. But it just it was sort of sad and depressing the way he did it and the mm-hmm. way they did it for the record had so much more. And it, it was clearly much more of a radio play kind of version. Um, but I, I wonder how often you're, or if you've ever been in those battles of this is how I'm hearing it. This is the, the instrumentation I want versus them saying that's not really going to work for either radio or singles or where we want to position you.
1: You know, I've been lucky. I've always worked with, I've always been surrounded by people that I, that really respect creativity. And so very seldom have I had somebody say, have you thought about it this way? You know, other than a producer who I consider the last writer of the songs, you know, if I'm not going to let my first producer, Dave Brainerd, and then Jay Joyce, if I'm not going to let them have some rope, it makes no sense. You know, both of them changed arrangements. Um, you know Jay has turned songs on their ear and and when he first started i would think oh god you know but i'm so happy that i let him have his journey because what it ended up as was different than i imagined and better um i do listen when you know the A&R team that i work with i haven't ha- i hadn't had anr before this record outside of management and then the head of the label at the time um, but I see how much care they take. I, I worked with Jeff Sosnow and Lenny warnicker as a on this record. And very seldom do they feel strongly enough to say, hey, could you do this? So when they do, I do listen and I give it a shot. But at the end, it's my call. Right. And sometimes what they want is exactly what it needs. And then sometimes what I originally wanted is what it needs. I don't have anything out there that I think, man, I wish I wouldn't have listened. I I don't feel that.
0: Uh, Okay. Speed round. Is there a song you thought would be a hit that you wrote and nobody else seemed to feel that way?
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, hold my hand uh, on my first record. That was a song. Part of why I made that record was I was so frustrated that that song hadn't had a bigger home. And, And it was all meant to be because then I ended up recording it and it, it's still my favorite song I've ever I've ever been a part of. And I got to perform it on the Grammys and you know, was nominated for Best Country Song at the Grammys. I don't think that would have happened if any, if it would have had any other journey.
0: Yeah. Um What about a song that you thought was just meh and then it ended up being one that everybody raved about?
1: Past as the past was that way. I, I didn't not like it. I just didn't realize just how much everybody
0: else was gonna love it. Yeah. You know? Tell me about the um, Jaws viewing party that you hosted and how Jaws inspired a song. That's very random. Unless, of course, you were using the da-da-da-da. That part I would get. But it was not even really about that.
1: Well, I, I've had that idea. I have wanted to write that idea for a long time where in the movie Jaws where Roy Scheider sees the shark for the first time and he turns around and says, we're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah. <laughs> Just about the world. and. And when yeah. we wrote it, I wrote right it, I wrote it. now we
0: sure need a bigger boat.
1: Yes. I mean the song is more relevant now than it was when we wrote it, which is sad. Yeah. Because when we wrote it, I wrote it with a guy named Adam Wright. And when he and I wrote it, it was you know, the South was flooding, the West, the California was on fire. And so that's that's where that song came from. Um now it continues to every day be more and more relevant. Um, the Jaws Watching Party was the Forty fifth anniversary? No, no. yeah, forty fifth anniversary really? of Jaws. Yes. I was going to say the twenty fifth, but it was the forty fifth anniversary of Jaws. And so on that day, um, we did a marathon watch party, and I would pop into people's Zoom watch parties. That's great. and when it when my time was up, this little shark would come across the screen. <laughs>
0: it was
1: cute. Um, so yeah, that was really fun. And I just just did a video. It's a animated video of sorts with Randy Newman, who does a guest yeah. guest vocal on that. He and I are like cartoons or stop motion characters. I don't know what oh, it's called, fun. but we're, we're kind of like bobbleheads. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah. So it's pretty, it's been a fun thing.
0: That's fun. Um, you, yeah, you were tweeting about jaws. Um, you have a sort of, is it a video podcast you can come over, but you can't come in or more? Yeah. It um, is. It's, we started it on Instagram
1: live and, um, There were too many technical errors. Too many people were trying to get on Instagram at once right then. So moved it over to YouTube, which is great because then it can live a little longer. And um, it's been a really fun way for me to interview people who inspire me. Um, It's a way for fans to get uh, just like a backstage conversation.
0: Yeah. I'm, you had uh, Emily Saliers on, uh, and I just love the Indigo Girls. Um, so that was that was a fun one. I like the I like the background too. Those that insight those conversations between artists. Um, you also um, have a book club. You're staying very busy during quarantine. You're engaging oh, yeah. with your fans a lot, um, but you also post about Juneteenth and Confederate statues and. Uh, progressive ideas. You know, um, I read a story that said you were actually surprised by the embrace of country music because of your sexuality and because of some mm-hmm. of your ideas. Um, do you still feel that way? Or do you feel like there's spaces within the industry that um, are unwelcoming to people who um, have maybe more progressive views?
1: Well, clearly there are. And I wasn't, I mean, you know, when I, when I posted about Black Lives Matter, I lost a ton of followers. Uh, and um a bummer. Yeah. Which I told my manager who didn't care either, but just said, Hey, just so you know, you just lost a ton of followers. I'm like, I'm not making music for bigots. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. really the way I feel and I feel like it's my job as a human to, to stand up for people who sometimes can't stand up for themselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, it's an artistic choice to be that way Though I remember the pivot point that I took in my career where it was, I'm going to alienate a bunch of dudes who really want to drink beer and talk sports with me by talking about feminism and the ways women are mistreated in male-dominated industries and everything else but I would much rather make that pivot and feel like good about what I'm doing and what I'm helping the next group of women coming through than just, you know, make more money and make sure everybody wants to, you know, go to the sports bar with me. Um so mm-hmm. it wasn't a tough choice for me, but there are moments where you re- recognize that maybe um, your your audience would be bigger. But also I think sometimes when you get really true and genuine about the things you care about, the respect from people and the investment in you is so much greater than that surface level of, Oh, I like the song she sings.
1: Oh yeah. I've had so many fans reach out to me and thank me for speaking up about things. And I don't even think I've been all that vocal, you know? Um, sometimes I wish I could be more vocal, but I don't feel informed enough sometimes to be more vocal. Um, but yeah, I, I've, and I've, and some of those fans that have reached out to me have been fans of mine from the beginning. And so I think, wow, you know, so I, I lost a couple thousand people who weren't really my fan mm-hmm. and someone who's really been with me from the get go. I would have lost them yeah. by just staying quiet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, We're running out of time, but you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition.
1: (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition.
0: It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, your Desert Island album. You can only have one.
1: Uh, Patty Loveless from Fallen Angels Fly.
0: Wow. I'm so, I'm so glad you did that right away because that's a tough one for everyone. So I think for musicians, it's especially tough. Um, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Self-discipline. Yeah. For the writing stuff, it's huge. It's hard Mm -hmm. to be, um, just sitting there with an empty page. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure?
1: Wow. Um, man, I don't know. I mean, I've had things that have failed like, you know, my last record, you know, we went for a country radio push and it cracked the top 40 and I wish it would have gotten higher, but I don't think of it as a as a my biggest failure. I mean, cuz I I can't really look at me and and say what could I have done better or different because I did everything I could. Right. Um wow, I don't know. And maybe it's good that I don't yeah. there's not something um that really pops up because to me the biggest failure would be to not try right. and i can honestly say there's not anything had i not taken the road of an artist that would have been it right i would Absolutely. have said you know I'm not pursuing that artist career when i could have um but i haven't done that so i don't feel a biggest failure that's good it's good
0: number four have you ever been in a fist fight not really.
1: I mean, you know, a couple times in sports, things, go, you know, I've had a few technical fouls, but yeah. not really
0: a first break. Number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for one day, who would it be? You know, I think the president, hmm. whoever that
1: president is. I mean, right now it'd be Trump. Yeah. But just to stand in their shoes and really see
0: the job that is. Yeah. Yeah. Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been?
1: Probably when I farted in PE class in my freshman year and doing setups, and so it rumbled across
0: the gym floor. Yep. Right I hope someone was holding your feet. They were. Oh, that's perfect timing. And
1: they started laughing. <laughs> you no,
0: know, there was no like hiding it like it was somebody else. No, that's Uh number 7, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? My self-discipline
1: when it comes to late night eating.
0: Oh, okay. So a different kind of self-discipline. Yes, yes. Yeah. I love you told Brian Koppelman that you know other writers who are um, very creative when they smoke weed and you would do that all the time, except for you would weigh like a thousand pounds because of the munchies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. These side effects. Those are tough. Um, Number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to?
1: Be kind to everybody you meet to their face and behind their back for <laughs> right. Try that.
0: And on the internet too. Might as mm-hmm. well throw that in there. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been?
1: Wow. Um, when I, I guess it was almost 10 years ago now I had a spinal fluid leak. Oh, wow. They didn't know what it was. It was spontaneous. And I thought I was dying. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of crazy things going on. I had double vision. Um, I couldn't feel half of my body. You know, I was sure that I was on my way out. And, and, you know, once I figured, once they found out what it was, which was, you know, a good almost month into what was going on with me, I felt a little better, but I still didn't
0: know. (laughs) Yeah. Spinal fluid leak sounds pretty terrible.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't wish it on
0: on, uh, very many people. Yeah. Um, I like that you stopped yourself from saying anyone, and there are certain people that you would wish it on, because that's how I operate as well. There are certain people <laughs> that deserve a spinal fluid leak, not not anyone. Uh, number 10, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Kind, uh, hardworking, and talented. Nice. Very, very to the point. Uh, final question, who should I have on this podcast? Who's someone, doesn't have to be sports or music or anything, just anyone that I should have on that's interesting?
1: Oh, let me think on that for a second because I know a lot of interesting people. I bet you do. You know, I think you should have Jay Joyce if you can get him, who produces so many records. And he might do this podcast. He doesn't do a lot, but he might do this one.
0: I'll have to check that out. That would be. I love music people because I have that sort of shadow life where I followed a different path and, you know. Uh, Got to hang out in Nashville with all you folks. Um, This was so fun. It was great talking to you. Congrats on the new record and uh, good luck supporting it from wherever you can and are allowed to at the moment and virtually via all the different avenues. Uh, It was great talking to you. You too. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. And this week it's coffee. Coffee. Coffee sweet, delicious coffee that I'm absolutely 100% addicted to now. I did not used to drink a lot of coffee. Before the quarantine, I would limit myself to maybe two Starbucks talls a week, a week. And I wouldn't even always finish the tall. That's like the small, you know, Starbucks tall is small. And now, because I think the beginning of quarantine, I just needed a reason to leave my house, walk down the street and go to this place that has a window open that you just order in advance, stick your hand into the window and take the coffee. I needed a reason to leave. And the the hot, comforting taste of a delicious mocha made me feel like I'd accomplished something. It was something I couldn't make at home because I've never in my life attempted to make coffee, so I had to go out and overpay for it. But it felt like this thing to do, this thing, this reason to leave the house and this delicious thing that I couldn't make for myself. Well, now it's gotten out of control. And one day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because I always said I did not want to be dependent on anything. I don't like... The feeling of needing anything. But now, in the morning, the first thing in my head is the thought of coffee. I'm one of those people now. I'm one of those people that's going to have a mug that says, but first, coffee. I'm going to get a t-shirt that says, don't talk to me until I've had my coffee. I'm going to be one of those people. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. Absolutely nothing. Because I keep telling myself I'm going to stop drinking it. And then I'll go like a day without it, and I'll be yawning my way through the prep for my radio show and falling asleep. Oh. Anyone have any tips? You help me. The commission needs your help this time. There, I fixed it, but I didn't. You fix it. Help me. If you have a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me, at Sarah Spade, or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Leave your dilemma in your review, and maybe I'll fix it on a podcast. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said.